Our scripture reading this morning comes from Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. It's the story of Job as he humbles himself before God. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is that, this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As we look at the book of Job today, it's hard to tell when it was written. It doesn't tell us that Job lived in a particular time. It tells us that he's from the land of Uz, chapter 1, verse 1. You know where the land of Uz is? I don't know either. The Bible scholars, they don't know where it is. It's an ancient place. There are some indicators in the book of Job that it's really ancient, maybe from the patriarchal age, you know, the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are other indications that maybe it's from a later time, maybe 6th century, 5th century B.C., but we don't know. But one of the things we get here is the basic story of a man who seemed to have everything going for him. As I read this description from Job chapter 1, those of you that know anything about farming or ranching, you listen to this and see what you think. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. When you hear that, what do you think about Job? It sounds like he has everything going for him. Big, happy, healthy family. Unimaginable, well, unimaginable to me, resources in terms of his livestock and his reputation, blameless and upright. And somebody who feared God and shunned evil. Man, Job has everything going for him. Or so it seems. Right after this in Job chapter 1, there, there's a story of a heavenly conversation. The Lord is there in heaven and the angels come and they report in what they see. And there's this character that comes in. Here in Job, he's called the Satan, the adversary, the accuser. And he comes along and God says, hey, Satan, have you ever looked at Job here? We have messed up people in the world. We have sinful people in the world, people that go the wrong way. But look at Job. Job is a godly man. He, he loves God. And he keeps his ways. 
And the Satan says, well, that's, that's only because you bless him. That's only because he has an easy life. If he started having hardship, if, if he's lost things, then he'd curse you, God. I know he would. The point to this setup of the story of Job is to set up all that follows here, which is to show that Job is not deserving of what happens to him. From reading Job and from reading the rest of the Scripture, I don't see the claim that Satan is the agent of all the bad things that happen. We can't look at the world and read the headlines, all the bad stuff, yep, there's Satan, there's Satan, there's Satan. Oh, yep, under that bush, that's Satan. We also don't see in Scripture that God dispassionately opens the way for us to suffer and go through hard times. So what do we see here when we look at Job? I see Job who's, who's doing really well and then his world falls apart. His children die. His livestock and wealth is wiped out. And then his body is attacked. He has boils and sores all over his body. And by the time we get to chapter 2, Job's wife is there encouraging him. Job, God's punishing you. Job, God's out to get you. Why don't you just curse God and die? And then Job's friends come. And Job's friends do what's probably the right thing right at first. They sit there with Job in silence for days. But then they come out with their message. And over and over again, as we read here through Job, we see that their message is, Job, fess up. Fess up that you're a sinner. Fess up that you deserve what's happening to you. Man, we know everybody's a sinner. You did it, Job. You deserve it. You confess it. God will make it right. That view that if you do the right stuff, good happens. If you do the wrong stuff, bad happens. We do see that in Bible. We see that in, in the covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29. Moses is giving his final words from God to the people. And in chapter 28, he says, okay, people, if you keep my covenant, if you stay in relationship with me, then you're going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed when you go. You're going to be blessed when you come. You're going to be blessed at work. You're going to be blessed at home. You're going to be blessed everywhere in every way. But if you don't keep my covenant, then you're going to have all these problems, all these difficulties, all this bad stuff's going to happen. So we have this basic reasoning. You do bad stuff, bad stuff happens to you. Now we flip that reasoning a lot. We flip that and say, okay, if bad stuff is happening to you, that must mean that you've done something wrong, that you deserve it, and that God is acting against us because of our sin. 
We see this kind of reasoning in John chapter 9 in the New Testament. Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're walking to town, and they come across this blind guy. And the disciples say, hey, Jesus, look at this blind guy right here. Is he blind, A, it's a multiple choice test here, Jesus, is he blind, A, because he sinned, or B, because his parents sinned? And because it's obvious, right? If he's blind, which is a form of suffering, it's because somebody sinned. Is it A, his sin, or B, the sin of his parents? There's only two choices, Jesus. So do you know which choice Jesus chooses? C, none of the above. Jesus says it's not because of his sin. It's not because of his parents' sin. But instead, look at this as an occasion for God to show his glory. As we read Job, each time Job's friends come at him with accusation, with the explanation, Job, you're suffering because you sinned, you need to confess and get right with God. Every time the friends say that, Job comes back with one of his speeches where he says, guys, I haven't done anything. Guys, I, I haven't done all that bad stuff. And round and around they go for chapter after chapter. What we see here in Job and other places in Scripture, we today talk of as the, the problem of evil and suffering. This is a real problem. It's not just for us modern people. It's an ancient problem, which is why we see this in the Bible here in Job. If you go back and read Egypt, uh, Egyptian, Babylonian, ancient liter literature from other cultures, they deal with the same questions. Our world throughout all of time has offered various suggestions. One suggestion is that, oh, you just think it's evil and suffering. It's, it's really just an illusion. That's along the lines of what Hinduism says. Oh, this, this world that we see, this material world, it's just maya. It's illusion. Or, or we hear Buddhism say, if you would be detached, detached from each other, detached from things, detached from love, detached from connection, then you wouldn't see it as, as evil and suffering. Or in Christian science, we hear the similar message. It's, it's illusion if we just need to change our mindset and everything will be okay. Or we hear some Christians say, if only we had enough faith. If we had more faith, we wouldn't suffer. If we had more faith, we wouldn't get sick. If we had more faith, all these bad things wouldn't happen. Or... We hear some people say, well, God is just evil and mean and he's out to get you. Or we hear there's no such thing as good people. So what do you mean? Why do bad things happen to good people? The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all of us just deserve it. And then there's another thing we say. Maybe you've heard this. Everything happens for a reason. Anybody ever heard that before? Yeah, I mean, my problem is... I don't know what that means. Does it mean we live in a world of cause and effect? If so, yeah, we do. Stuff happens, and then other stuff happens. Does it mean meticulous providence, that God is the only effectual agent, that everything that happens in the world is an act of God? I don't see that in Scripture. Is it a restatement of the disciples' beliefs in John chapter 9? 
that the guy's blind because of his sin or his parents' sin. I mean, uh, everything happens for a reason. He's blind because he sinned. Don't think so. Or some people have another explanation. It's polytheism. There's lots of gods out there. And our gods arguing and fighting with other gods. And sometimes he wins and sometimes he loses. Or some people reject omnipotence, the idea that God is all-powerful. Yeah, God would really, really like to be able to help you, but God's just not strong enough. Or again, you have people that Leib- like Leibniz who say, we just live in the best possible of all worlds. So to have the goods that we have, got to have some bad stuff too, to provide contrast, to allow the good stuff to happen. Our problem is that this, this problem of evil and suffering has led some people to turn away from God. And we start with these attributes of God. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. God is omniscient, all-knowing. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And then God is omnibenevolent. God is all-good. And people look at that and say, okay, you're telling me that God is all-powerful and all-good, and yet they're suffering. I don't get that because if I were God, this, this is part of our problem here. We, we imagine we're like God or God's like us. If I were God and I were all-powerful and all-good, meaning the world would be completely different, no evil, no suffering. But when we go back to Job, what solution to the problem do we see there? You can read 42 chapters, all 42 chapters of Job, and you don't get one. Job cries out to God. See it in chapter 30. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know that you will bring me down to death to the place appointed for all the living. Job's gotten to this point in his suffering. He's starting to give up on God. But then starting in chapter 38, God answers. And God's basic answer is, Job... You don't know what you're talking about. You you don't know the immensity of creation. You don't know the immensity of who I am and what I've done. And by the time we get to the end of Job, to the passage that Kevin read for us in chapter 42, Job's repented. Job's turned to God. He's never gotten an explanation. He's never gotten a theory. He's never heard what happened in chapter 1, the conversation that's told us between the Lord and the Satan. And yet Job turns to God and trusts him. Now sometimes we, we, we have the perspective of, of long years. We have the perspective of reading the book of Job and standing outside of the story, unlike him who's immersed in it. We sometimes think we understand more than Job. I don't think I do, and I don't come away with a theory from Job. For me, the best insight into all of this, all the problem of evil and suffering, is Jesus. 
In Jesus, God himself comes on the scene. In Jesus, God himself enters the world and becomes vulnerable. In Jesus, God himself suffers. Now we can look at Jesus hanging on the cross and and see the crowds coming by, and they don't see that. They don't say, oh, here's Jesus. He's a righteous sufferer. They see Jesus, and they reason like the disciples. Man, Jesus is up there suffering, nailed to that piece of wood because he deserves it. You remember, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the one through whom life comes. And look how God's getting back at him now, hanging him there on the cross. But what's God do? God refutes that way of thinking by raising Jesus from the dead. In his resurrection, it's not just that Jesus is alive again, but God is refuting the way of thinking that says Jesus deserves it. Jesus' resurrection, God defeats all the powers of sin, death, and hell for us. So when we look at the Bible, whether it's Job or the whole book, God doesn't give us an explanation. God doesn't give us a theory. God gives us himself in the person of his son, Jesus. Jesus coming into our world, joining our mess. Jesus coming into our world, getting up close and personal with sinners, with broken people, with people in the midst of suffering. This is the Jesus who invites us to trust him. This is the Jesus who invites us to follow him. To follow him for our own sake, but also to follow him for the sake of the broken, hurting world we live in. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of times in my life that I have more questions than I have answers. There's a lot of times when I look for a theory or an explanation of what's happening. But I thank you that you didn't just send us an explanation. You didn't just send us a theory. You didn't just add to our understanding. But you sent Jesus to bring us hope to bring us life. Today, Lord, we turn to him. We turn to him in the midst of hardship. We turn to him in the midst of trials, knowing that he's gone before us, that in him we have life. Amen.